This is technical producer Will Erskine coming up on the Scott Thompson Show podcast. COVID-19 vaccine could be coming to a pharmacy near you. Trudeau rises in the polls while Doug Ford drops. Prince Harry returns to England. And boycotting the Olympics could taint the games for years. It's all on the way. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. Is this spring break? Go ahead. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Hey! Spring break! If the border wasn't closed, I'd love to go to Disney World. Then I can ride in a teacup while my parents get a COVID-19 vaccination. It's the Scott Thompson Home Show. Here's Scott Thompson! We haven't done this in so long. All right. Uh, good afternoon. It was, uh, it, hey, how are you? Are you supposed to be at school without a shirt on? Uh, you know he's not going to school if he's walking around without a shirt on. It's just the way it is. Uh, good afternoon. It is 12-11. It is 900 CHML. I'm Scott Thompson. Will Erskine back at the station, keeping the Scott Thompson home show between the pipes, as he has done for 56 weeks. Feel free to jump into the convo. Love to hear from you. Lots of ways to do that. You can... Uh, go to the website, send us a note, Scott Thompson at 900CHML.com. As the vaccine comes into Canada, we are starting to see uh, more and more uh, vaccination sites ramp up. Uh, the recent flood of COVID-19 vaccine doses into Canada, however, is, is supposed to taper off this week. We got quite a few uh, over the Easter, uh, uh, Easter long weekend, and hence the freezer dug comments. Uh, with a little more than uh, 1 million shots scheduled for delivery over the next seven days. Again, we're seeing uh, vaccination sites start to uh, uh, start to close off again just simply because that supply is so valuably needed. And uh, let's listen to this report on uh, where we are as far as doses. Canada has received millions of new shots in recent weeks thanks to the likes of Moderna and AstraZeneca, but neither of those firms are planning any deliveries this week. Instead, the Public Health Agency of Canada says the only shipments will come from Pfizer and BioNTech, which have consistently brought more than a million doses into the country each week since March. Federal Procurement Minister Anita Anand says the lull should be short-lived, promising millions of shots in the coming weeks. The push for vaccines is becoming more urgent as case counts soar across the country and provinces clamor for more doses. Michelle McQuig, the Canadian Press. So uh, obviously, um, you know, supply continues to be an issue, and uh, but every so often we get a lull, and and that's why uh, things are the way they are. Uh, good news is Ontario is expanding its pharmacy uh, program. Let's bring in Justin Bates, CEO of the Ontario Pharmacists Association, and is with us now. Justin, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. I'm well, and good afternoon. Uh, Justin, how many pharmacies in Ontario are involved in this program now, and what can we expect in the near future? Mm-hmm. Well, we're in the process of onboarding this week uh, on a rolling basis uh, an additional uh, 700 pharmacies, which will bring our total to just under 1,500. So we are quickly scaling up to meet the demand and ensure that we can mobilize uh, all of our members and pharmacies to increase the vaccination rates. And if you make a appointment on one, and this is for the pharmacy sites with AstraZeneca, and, and I've been on these uh, websites, so if you are on and you sign up, how long before you, you get some sort of uh, indication of when you're going to go? Any idea? Yeah, no, it's a great question because every pharmacy is utilizing their own booking system. So what you'll see in the process is that as new pharmacies receive supply, and are onboarded into the program, the government website, uh, the Ontario.ca uh, Pharmacy COVID uh, Vaccine, uh, is the place where you'll see all of the participating pharmacies. And we would encourage the public to go to the websites, look at the booking process. Many of them are online. And uh, depending on when the appointments are available, you can get in fairly quickly. Uh, do pharmacies have enough product to keep these uh, clinics running continuously? 
Well, that is the rate limiting step across the system, and pharmacy is no different. Um, we have been advocating for a mix of vaccines uh, to include Moderna, Pfizer, and AstraZeneca for that very reason, because supply continues to be a challenge. It's the bottleneck in the system. So we have each of the stores that are coming on board in Hamilton and, and the other uh, jurisdictions will have 200 initial doses. Um, that will quickly run out, as we're seeing in phase two already, uh, when supply was shipped out last week for those phase two stores that brought us up to a total of 700. Uh, they're reordering. They've already gone through 200 and many have wait lists. So our throughput is quite significant. Um, but there is more supply. There's about 585,000 um, new doses of AstraZeneca that have been distributed to uh, pharmacy wholesalers. And that will help with the reorders of the existing pharmacies and for those new 700 that we're onboarding this week. So what, do you, uh, what message do you have for those that are uh, perhaps signed up and still waiting? Well, my message is to keep checking and trying. Um, many of these stores are receiving replenishments this week. Uh, there is an order, a reorder process with the pharmacy wholesalers. So we do expect uh, supply to be replenished uh, over the next several days. And hopefully from there, we will have a continual reorder process and supply will not be interrupted. And that will help with uh, getting through all of the wait lists and appointments. So you're pretty much using all of this up as it's coming in then? Yeah, every every uh, dose has an appointment booked against it. So the way that we operate, which was similar to the flu season this past year, was that uh, you would only book the appointments when you have supply on hand. So that way you don't waste or spoil the vaccine, and you also can manage your inventory next to the appointment. So there is nothing sitting in a fridge for an unnecessarily long period of time. It's all booked up, and uh, we are utilizing wait lists as well because we are expecting that we will see... Uh, an evolution in the age bands. Uh, hopefully soon, we know that NACI is reviewing what's happened in Europe with the recommendations around AstraZeneca and expect that to be back to 18 plus, uh, hopefully soon. Uh, has there been any thought, and you mentioned this earlier, about expanding uh, pharmacies uh, product beyond AstraZeneca? Well, we're certainly advocating for that. We think not only do we have the expertise to manage both the Pfizer product and uh, and Moderna, but you know, with the demand being what it is and getting to a place where we can start to have essential workers be accessing pharmacies and beyond uh, the current age cohort of 55 and above, we're going to need that kind of supply. We're also advocating for taking the vaccine into those vulnerable neighborhoods and essential businesses. So we know from our experience in the flu season, where we went to remote communities and we went to first responders with the flu vaccine, that this was a model that worked very well. And we think it should be deployed uh, within the context of the COVID vaccine. Uh, and we should remind everybody, this is by appointment only. There's no walk-up involved here. That's right. Now, there are exceptions to that. Uh, if at the end of the day there's uh, leftover dosage um, and we want to make sure, doses rather, we want to make sure that we don't uh, waste any. But uh, appointment only is the model. Uh, and as I said on the outset, the best way to book an appointment is to go to the website of the pharmacy of your choice and uh, book an appointment that way. It, it's mostly um, seamless if you do it that way and, and convenient for, uh, for the individual. Have you ha have you had any or seen any hesitancy in regard to AstraZeneca? We're still hearing polling that people are are concerned about this brand. Are you seeing that, or are appointments going missed? Well, I think the the challenge certainly is one of uh, a communications uh, perspective because of all of the shifting guidelines and what we've heard uh, from some of the experiences uh, in Europe. But I can say. Um, that we're dealing with the vaccine hesitancy by following the science and guidelines and um, reassuring uh, all, um, all Ontarians and, and Canadians that this is a safe and effective vaccine, that the benefits far outweigh the risks. In fact, uh, when you look at the efficacy numbers now increasing to upwards of 76% for preventing minor symptoms and 100% preventing death uh, and, and serious symptoms, um, you know, we still go with the vaccine you can get as the one that you should get and you should feel very confident. Um, there's even a body of evidence now suggesting that the AstraZeneca vaccine may be more effective against the variants based on when it was manufactured, 
the clinical trials and so forth. So, you know, we're, we're 100% confident that uh, this is the safe uh, vaccine. Are all pharmacies getting the product at uh, the same time? I mean, obviously, when you go on to book, you can see various pharmacies. Are you just supposed to book the one closest to you? Uh, how do you know who's getting what first? Mm-hmm. Would you, if so you booked at one, would you get, if, if you booked at one, would you, would you perhaps get it ahead of the other? Uh, so all of the pharmacies are being coordinated um, with the two pharmacy wholesalers. So there's uh, a self-distributor in Shoppers Drug Mart and McKesson uh, Wholesale that supplies uh, 100% of the pharmacies that will be part of the program. So it is coordinated. Um, the shipments are sent out uh, on a regular um, cadence. And uh, you know there may be cases where certain stores are onboarded uh, before others because of the scale of what we're doing. We're doing it on a rolling basis. So you'll see stores added uh, every day as we move forward because our shared objective is to get all pharmacies across the province participating in the program to give greater access and convenience to the public. But I would suggest that you go to the pharmacy of your choice um, and, uh, and you know, check the website um, as a last resort call as well. And uh, that should uh, meet the needs of the majority. Are you concerned of some booking more than one appointment? Yes, that's been a concern from the beginning. It's one of the things that, um, you know, we're encouraging people not to do with the vaccine shopping. Um, we certainly saw some region hopping in the first phase when we only had the three regions, uh, which we also discouraged. The challenge of having uh, each pharmacy utilize their own booking system is that it's not possible to completely mitigate that. Um, and, and in some cases, you are seeing one pharmacy that would have a cancellation because somebody chose to go to another pharmacy. But I think that has been worked out now that we have more pharmacies participating. And as we continue to ramp up, that'll be less and less of an issue. So, again, any idea uh, once person, for example, person goes on today and books an appointment, how long before they have to get there, before they get their shot? Yes, it'll vary by by pharmacy, depending on what stock they have left, what kind of demand um, they've seen over the last several days. But new shipments are coming in uh, later this week. So I would encourage people in certainly um, the regions where new stores are being added, as well as where there's an existing footprint of uh, pharmacies that were participating in phase one and two, that uh, they should see some more availability uh, as we get into later stages of this week. As you see more and more pharmacies jumping on board, what has the feedback been from them and those that have been doing this uh, so far? Positive feedback. Uh, we went through 100% of the supply, short dated supply in two and a half weeks in our phase one in the three regions. And I had the uh, I had the honor of being uh, present uh, behind the scenes, uh, fully PPE'd. Um, but um, you know, it, it was it was an emotional time, emotional time for the pharmacists when they first received the uh, box of AstraZeneca doses, and then being able to be part of this effort to protect public health, to keep our economy open, and really contributing a solution as part of a broader effort. Uh, it brings tears to the eyes of patients um, hoping to return to normal and seeing an end to the pandemic, and pharmacists who are very proud to step up and, and be part of this overall effort. Uh, Justin, before we let you go, uh, your message from those that are still hesitant about AstraZeneca. Well, I think the the key is to get the vaccine that you're offered. Uh, Every day that goes by, there's an increased risk uh, of not getting vaccinated. All the vaccines are 100% effective against serious illness and preventing death. Um, We're very confident uh, that they're all safe and effective, um, and people should feel uh, comfortable and confident uh, asking any question they have about AstraZeneca or any of the differences between the mRNA vaccines like Pfizer and Moderna and the viral vector vaccines like what's going to come, hopefully, the J&J and AstraZeneca. We are uh, providing that as part of our counselling. Uh, physicians do that as well in terms of the education piece. So uh, no question is bad and uh, you know we, we are seeing uh, high demand for the AstraZeneca vaccine. Justin Bates has been with us, CEO of the Ontario Pharmacists Association. More and more pharmacies coming on board as we see more supply uh, slowly trickle in. Justin, thanks for the time. Good luck with all of this. Stay well. 
Appreciate it. You too. All right. Uh, obviously, lockdown, stay-at-home order. I mean, you're seeing it right the way across the country uh, as uh, Canadians try to cope with, um, you know, the race between the vaccine, getting it here and into arms, and the variant before the variants before they uh, take control of the situation. Uh, we've seen Montreal, Quebec in the past uh, imply or um, put uh, COVID restrictions in place, which include a curfew. Uh, and then have uh, changed it a bit and now back to an 8 p.m. curfew. Uh, the fatigue obviously setting in, uh, hundreds defy the curfew and in a pretty destructive pro- uh, protest over the weekend. Also saw anti-masking and uh, anti-lockdown demonstrations going on in, in various locations. Have we just hit a wall here? Uh, will these sort of restrictions uh, still continue to work. Let's bring in Dan Horner, Associate Professor and Chair in the Department of Criminology, Ryerson University, and is with us now. Dan, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well. I hope you're doing well, too. So your thoughts here. Uh, obviously, we're over a year into this, Dan. Uh, we don't have to tell you about the fatigue that exists right the way across the country. Mm-hmm. Uh, do these curfews work? Is it is it a good way to to keep things in check? Well, you know, I I think all Canadians have been living with, you know, we've all had to make sacrifices over the last year in terms of various um, restrictions that have been, been, you know, put on us. Uh, I think the the curfews, uh, it seems to me, following the discussions in Montreal, um, these curfews seem to be uh, particularly problematic for people um, in terms of, you know, not being able to uh, to go out after after a certain time, after eight o'clock at night. Um, And, you know, there's a lot of debate as to, you know, what they're what the impact they have on the spread of, of COVID is. Uh, but it, it, uh, certainly seems to be a policy that, um, has, has deepened, as you say, the sort of the, the fatigue that we have with, uh, with, with some of these restrictions. And so they've proven to be a very contentious way of, uh, fighting the, uh, COVID epidemic for sure. Uh, the premier of uh, Quebec saying that this is what's needed in order to stop those family gatherings or social gatherings that are happening in people's homes. Uh, in the evening hours and such. Um, so again, it's not a case of keeping people off the streets. It's, it's a case of, you know, they're really using only the streets to get to their friends' homes. Exactly, uh, yeah. It, 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 does a curfew work in that sort of scenario? Well, yeah. I, I mean, curfews are uh, curfews have, have been a, a policy that have been used by governments for a whole bunch of different a, a whole bunch of different issues. Um, it, you know, it's not clear as to as to you know whether they are actually presenting the preventing those gatherings from from taking place. Obviously, there there are people who are um, you know people who are you know who who take the risk of, of of disobeying the curfew, and it it has a differing impact on on different segments of the population. And I think what you saw with the uh, sort of the protest that erupted at yesterday, there seems to be a sense that this is targeting um, uh, younger people uh, living in more densely populated areas. So the curfew isn't having a big impact on, uh, you know, people in more sort of suburban areas and stuff like that. Uh, it's not having as much of an impact on older people who, you know, going out after 8, uh, 8 p.m. or 10 p.m. isn't going to have a huge impact on them. So it, it really does seem to be causing uh, a lot of uh, a lot of tension uh, and a lot of anger amongst a, a certain segment of younger people, especially in uh, cities like Montreal and Quebec. Is this a sign uh, that leaders are losing control of those that are frustrated? Is yeah, it a tipping I mean, point? We always, yeah, sorry, sorry, I cut you off. No, is it a tipping point? Yeah, you know, it's, uh, you know, it, it, it's, uh, it, you know, there's, we, we've seen sort of uh, for months now these sort of, um, uh, you know, uh, kind of anti-masking, uh, anti-masking protests and stuff like that. And they've always been fairly uh, marginal, but it seems uh, as though, uh, you know, this could be, uh, you know, I think we always knew that after about a year of, of these types of restrictions, and we're now, you know, deep into the second year of these COVID restrictions, that uh, we might just start to see uh, more of this uh, kind of anger boiling up, especially when there's a sense that, um, you know, uh, as you were saying earlier, is this really the most uh, effective policy for for, uh, for fighting COVID? A lot of people are raising the issue that, uh, you know, things like providing uh, you know, better ventilation in schools and, uh, you know, uh, stuff like paid sick leaves, um, you know, might be a more effective way than than, than simply creating this blanket, um, you know, restriction on people's movements and stuff like that, which, um, you know, it's, it's not surprising that, that a certain segment of the population is is going to start being, you know, uh, increasingly vocal about their uh, their fatigue of this type of scenario and their their anger towards it. 
It seems that something like this, like an 8 o'clock curfew, would work in a 9-to-5 world. But, mm. I mean, especially during the pandemic, it's become anything but that. So yeah. is this sort of uh, a, a process that would work in, in a world that is no longer 9-to-5? Exactly. I mean, a lot of these people, uh, you know, were, were, were raising a lot of the, the, the anger towards the curfew. People were, were raising the fact that, you know, they have to be uh, out working after this after this curfew has been lifted and, uh, you know, and and uh, and. And so they're, you know, they're they're no longer feeling, uh, you know, they're, you know, they're they're feeling like they're being targeted just for, you know, you know, going to going to work or, or coming home from work. Uh, there's a lot of people who who work in the evening, especially in, you know, in in you know sectors of our economy that are sort of uh, necessities, whether it's you know working at, at, at pharmacies that are open late or uh, grocery stores or, or what have you. So uh, yeah, so this is something that is uh, again kind of raising, uh, you know. Uh, raising some some issues here as to whether this is really sort of a fair and effective policy, uh, and maybe that's why you're seeing a bigger pushback against this than you are against, uh, you know, uh, other restrictions like like masking and stuff like that. Well, many have commented. We remember during the first wave, you went outside your front door, you didn't hear anything. You didn't hear planes yeah. overhead. You didn't hear traffic on the highways in the distance. Whereas, yeah, you go out there now, you're still going to hear the buzz of life. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it's I, I, it's kind of amazing. I mean, we all made that. We all, you know, I remember in the first few days of the pandemic, everyone talking about how like there's no traffic on the streets. And uh, yeah. and now it's, it, it you know, it, it feels oddly normal that a lot of people seem to be out and about and uh, going about a very uh, normal, a normal routine. And this makes the, you know, this makes the case that people have commented on in a number of ways, which is the impact of covid is not being sort of felt by people equally. Like there's people who are clearly sort of mm. um, going on about with their daily lives with, with, you know, without huge sacrifices. And then other people who are finding themselves targeted by, uh, by curfews or, you know, and, uh, you know, having to be at risk just because of the type of work they have requiring them to, uh, you know, to commute and stuff like that. So it really kind of underlines the, the unequal impact of, of, of the pandemic. Dan Horner has been with us, Associate Professor Chair in the Department of Criminology, Ryerson University, talking about the blowback that we're seeing across the country for uh, protocol and restrictions and lockdowns and curfews and such. Dan, thanks so much for the time. Be well. Yes, you too, and thanks for having me. Now it's time for my opinion. Here's the commentary. Especially after the Donald Trump era, Canadians have had a pretty smug attitude towards our friends in the United States, for some reason thinking we are somehow better than our neighbors to the South. I remember watching U.S. news coverage early in the pandemic and thinking how far behind they were. With the Trumpster still in denial, case counts and deaths were skyrocketing in the U.S., while here in Canada we were doing what we were told. My, how the tables have turned. While Canada lags around 50th in the world for fully vaccinating its citizens, the American machine has kicked into overdrive and now leads the pack while Canadians seem content to finish after the rest of the advanced world, and we're not questioning our Prime Minister on his performance. This weekend, Canada hit another deadly milestone, proving once again why the U.S. is a world leader and Canada is not. For the first time since the COVID-19 outbreak began, Canada's rate of new cases of the coronavirus has eclipsed that of the United States relative to the country's population. Simply put, we now have more per capita than the U.S. How can Justin Trudeau claim to fix the world's climate problems when he can't even vaccinate Canadians in a timely fashion? It's not only embarrassing, it's dangerous. I'm Scott Thompson. New research from the Angus Reid Institute says that uh, the provinces feeling the heat on uh, as far as people being angry regarding the rollout of vaccine. A majority of Ontario's, Ontarians feel Doug Ford has failed uh, the pandemic response. To talk more about all of this, Dave Krasinski is with us, research director at the Angus Reid Institute and is with us now. Dave, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well. Good afternoon. How are you today? I'm not doing too bad. Uh, great to have you here. What is this research telling you at this stage of this pandemic? Well, it, I think it's showing us that, you know, despite the fact that the rollout is really amping up, they are, the vaccine numbers are, are looking pretty good um, over the course of the last you know, week or so. Uh, the nation broke 300,000 doses administered on Friday uh, for the first time. Um, so, so that's good news. And we're certainly seeing a bit of optimism there. 
the the percentage of people who are looking forward to getting their their vaccine continues to rise. Um, but what we're also seeing is that the, the criticism of, of provincial governments um, in a number of areas is is really starting to to ramp up. I think that has a lot to do with the the fact that you know the cases are really rising across the country and and people are. I think blaming provincial governments a little bit more than the federal government uh, at this point in time. You know, just 33% of Ontario residents say that they think the province has done a good job in handling the vaccine distribution, um, which is lowest in the country, kind of tied with Manitoba at 34%. And I think it's important to note that while that is the the public perception, you know, Ontario is, is right there with the rest of the country in terms of the number of doses administered per population. You know, if you look at the uh, per 1,000 numbers, Ontario's right at uh, 200, and the, the, the national average is 199. Um, so I, I think that there is certainly a perception that the government is, is you know, failing the, the, the population right now. And we've, we've seen that in terms of the restriction numbers. People were very disappointed with how long it took to put in the restrictions. And we're starting to see that a little bit in the vaccination numbers as well. People are very critical of the Ford government right now. It's, uh, I find it interesting that the provinces keep getting the heat and, and the prime minister seems to get off scot-free. Or, and we're seeing today numbers even going up. Uh, when this yeah. has been, the, the provinces, the problems, problems, the provinces are having are all related to supply issues. So why yeah. are the provinces taking the heat for that and not the prime minister? Yeah, and I think you know there was this the big story that came out uh, last week when the federal government kind of uh, was was critical of the provinces and saying that you know there are you know, hundreds of thousands of doses that are, are unused. And, you know, you had Doug Ford go go out and say, those just arrived yesterday. So, yeah, of course that we have some, some stockpile unused. You know, 76.5% of the doses delivered have been administered. But the majority of that 24% was very recently arriving. And I think that um, what the, the, the provinces have been frustrated with is that, um the supply hasn't been there for operations to really um, scale up to to a level where they could say, you know, come on, come all, like like some places are doing in the United yeah. States, and not run out of supply. So I think that's that's the frustration is that the, the provinces are kind of walking this tightrope and saying, okay, well we've got plans to maximize what we have, and the federal government is saying, well you have to go quicker because we're we're giving you more. Um, but not really giving time for the, for the provinces to adjust their, their planning. So I think that was uh, kind of a, an interesting sidebar last week that was going on and was a little bit, um, I think you could say, unfair to the provinces um, who you know are, are making the best of a very difficult situation. And as I mentioned, those numbers um, in terms of administration have really uh, increased greatly. Last week was really kind of a, a high watermark for, for the country getting over no, yeah, well, a whole pile. The most vaccinated that has come in came in over the Easter weekend, which was why there was a big push uh, this past week. But, you know, even we, we, we just had Justin Bates on, the CEO of the Ontario Pharmacy Association. And he, again, and we've had, you know, reports from the mayor, the head of the health table here in Hamilton. This whole line about stuff being in freezers and, and, and going to waste is just poppycock. Uh, the Ontario Pharmacists Association said just on the show a, a half an hour ago, as they're coming in, they're going out. And anything that's in a freezer is for that week's appointments. So does yeah. this messaging not seem to be getting across? Yeah, I think there's a little bit of confusion in the population, too, just for the fact that we do have, you know, three different doses available. And the AstraZeneca issue has really added a lot of yeah. frustration and confusion just in the fact that that's the one that, you know, is easiest to administer in terms of um, its its shelf life and the fact that it doesn't need that that uh, uh, freezing temperature. And if you look at our numbers now, only forty one percent of Canadians are comfortable taking AstraZeneca. So, you know, it, it makes up about twenty percent of the supply, though. So that's not the issue, really. Like you're saying, the fact is that the the vaccine doses are are coming in and they're going out very quickly. If if you look at the um, the doses received and administered numbers, they, they really do uh, closely mirror each other. You know, the country is not, we're not sitting on doses and, and, and not giving them out. 
despite the fact that that has happened in a couple of, of instances uh, and, and certainly generates headlines. Um, so I think that there's, it's a tough time for provincial governments right now. Certainly with cases rising, people are in a, a bit of an ordinary yeah. mood. So if you're going to ask them questions about the provinces, yeah. they're going to be quite critical. So we're seeing that everywhere. It's just the worst in Ontario uh, over the last two weeks or so. Dave Gorzinski with us, Research Director at the Angus Reid Institute. Dave, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Be well. No problem, Scott. You too. All right. Uh, over the course of the weekend, uh, the Liberals and the NDP held uh, conventions. Uh, the uh, Conservatives, of course, had done it uh, a week or two earlier. This is uh, policy stuff, getting ready for an election and such, and and what they are going to run on. Let's bring in Andrew Brander, a senior consultant with Crestview Strategies and former director of communications for the Ontario government, and is with us now. Andrew, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well. Good afternoon, Scott. Yes, I am uh, as well as can be, and I love that rendition off the top. Uh, <laughs> you know, if you don't laugh, you cry, right? So, exactly. What else glad, can you do, uh, Andrew? Glad you're having uh, having a bit of fun with it. So uh, explain what the objective is of these conventions, because we often hear uh, there's, you know, lots of heated discussions, infight, infighting. This is when you hear from all angles of the party. Uh, what, what's the objective here? Yeah, that's right. I think, uh, I think policy conventions are in large part designed to be, uh, looking to the future in terms of, uh, hearing directly from the, the party membership, the party brass, uh, in terms of, uh, sorry, the grassroots, uh, listening, uh, obviously very intently would be the party brass, um, in terms of the mood, the mood of the membership. Um, and uh, the, the direction that the members want to see the party go. Obviously, at the end of the day, when it, when it comes to an election campaign, there's, there's a bit of a, a divergence often um, from the party's policy, uh, founding policy documents um, and, and what, what the leader at the time chooses to make a, to make a priority. Um, so, uh, you know, we've, we've certainly seen this uh, before, um, you know, a few weeks ago, the Conservatives obviously had their uh, annual general meeting uh, as well, their policy conference, um, where, you know, you see that, that divergence. You see, you see, you know, the grassroots putting forward, forward motions and voting down motions um, that, that talk, about, talk about, you know, climate change and the importance of moving on, on new and innovative technologies. And then the leader uh, the, the next day says, well, you know, I listen to the party membership. I hear what they're saying, but, you know, we're, we're going to present we're going to present a reasonable plan because this is where the majority of Canadians uh, Canadians want to go. And and in that same vein, I think we saw a lot of things this past weekend uh, in terms of the government's uh, conference, which is always that much more difficult because you are, of course, in, in government and it's it's less uh, governing's hard. It's less easy to be, uh, so, uh, you know, you, you need to be a little bit more pragmatic in, in the, in the way that you approach, approach things. And that's why, even though we've seen a number of resolutions pass the government's conference, uh, this, this past weekend, uh, it's really up to, uh, the caucus to determine, um, and, and really the party leadership to determine which ones, um, which one of those, you know, policy items, which, which items they want to advance as a government. So, um, I, I think it's, it certainly provides the grassroots an opportunity to feel like they've had their say, to feel like they've been heard. Um, but, but ultimately at the end of the day, it's, it's really up to the party leadership to determine what they do with you know, the, the resolutions that the, the different uh, policy conventions have produced. Uh, obviously, the NDP and the Liberals both competing for the left. Are you surprised they had their convention on the sa- at the same time? Is that, is that just yeah. coincidence? No, no. I, I, mean, I mean, yes, I think, I think it is coincidence. Um, but, you know, I, I feel so bad uh, for the NDP coming out of this weekend, you know, uh, to, to be quite, uh, quite honest with you, Scott, the entire last year has been a real struggle for all opposition parties to be able to get any kind of oxygen when it comes to, uh, new ideas and a path forward, 
um, and and to to present those ideas, it's been it's been almost next to impossible with the prime minister giving daily updates and and government you know ministers having so much focus on on them. It's it's almost been impossible for for you know the, any opposition party to break through to have. Uh, for the NDP to have their convention at the same time as the governing party will certainly not give the NDP the kind of exposure that you want from a convention like this. You, your, your first question in terms of, in terms of what these, um, these conventions are used for, I talked about the grassroots and the importance there, but typically party strategists look to these opportunities um, to contrast uh, the leadership style uh, to contrast your vision. Um, so, Andrew, how did this? How would this have happened then? I mean, it's not like these things are planned a week out. How would they end up on the same weekend? No, certainly, um, certainly, it's it, so. There are a lot of um, there are a lot of rules and regulations that are that are considered when it comes to when it comes to these things in terms of their frequency in terms of how, what kind of year and then pattern they have to follow. This is always a typical um, convention convention month. They're typically not on the same weekend. Um, so I, let I me ask you this, Andrew: Who is who yeah. scheduled theirs first? The Liberals, the NDP. <laughs> That's a good question. Because and, at the end I'm of the day, sure. Andrew, you know what it looks like: the Liberals want to take the wind out of the NDP sails. So let's schedule a convention the same week as theirs. You know well, that, that this is where it's coming and, from. And and that's and and that certainly very much could be the case. I, I I'd have to fact check that, Scott, but. You're you're certainly right. Like let's uh, let's be honest. I I watch these things closer than uh, closer than most. Switching yes. back and forth uh, between them throughout the weekend, even I couldn't keep them straight. The policies that were being debated uh, at the Liberal convention and the NDP convention really just sounded like an argument in terms of who can raise taxes more and who can create a bigger government faster. And and quite frankly, I think both conventions missed the mark in terms of what Canadians are looking for right now. Why did they miss the mark and what Canadians are looking for right now? So, uh, you know, the let's let's point to the prime minister's speech, for example. Um, I was getting a sense of deja vu. Uh, his speech started with a long clip from election night and what happened you know, a year and a half ago, he recited all the same slogans from the last campaign. He highlighted everything they've done over the past few months. Uh, he played that sort of comforter in chief role, which he does well, um, and, and spent a lot of time attacking the conservatives. But there was nothing new or forward looking. And I think that's where it missed the mark. I think, um, you know, you, the prime minister had an opportunity to speak in a partisan way. Uh, that he can't do when he's standing in front of his cottage every day. And I think Canadians are looking uh, for for what's next uh, these days. We're finally starting to see real progress with the vaccine rollout. Canadians are increasingly becoming less worried about their uh, immediate safety and are starting to worry more about the long-term effects of the pandemic uh, on jobs, on, you know, the, the effect of the pandemic on jobs and the economy. And they want to see a government with a plan for what's next, not someone who's building the plane while they're flying it. Um, you know, it, it, it's, will this election be, whenever it does come, will it all be about climate change? Because, again, you were talking about missing the mark, and, you know, every time there's an election, and I've been doing this for a while now, and, and whether it's provincial, federal, municipal, the issues, the top four or five issues are, are usually always the same. I mean, I think healthcare has really jumped up in the top two or three, uh, obviously yeah. post pandemic or during the pandemic. But, you know, you, like what I'm hearing is, you know, the healthcare system. That's what we're concerned about. We're concerned about our healthcare and the security of it. Um, you know, obviously jobs, the economy. Uh, taxation, our kids, their education, uh, you know, putting, putting a roof over their head and, and, and getting them educated. You, you know, I think the social issues that the liberals are chasing, uh, are all extremely important to Canadians, but I don't think they're in the top five. 
And, yeah, yet, I, and, I, and, I, and yet all we hear from the prime minister is all climate change all the time. And again, I'm not a denier. I'm not I'm not like the conservative party here. I'm not a denier. But it's like I don't think this is a priority for Canadians at this time. I think he's missing the mark. I, I think you're absolutely right on that. I think, um, you know, the where we were at uh pre-pandemic levels, um, you know, we, we had global marches against climate change and all these, uh, all these, all these other things. We, we know that that was certainly a, a central focus of the last campaign. And I think the, the lion's share of, uh, Canadians are in a place where, uh, they, they understand, as, as you just said, Scott, like they understand the importance of the environment. But it's it's one of those things that's nice to focus on when you have the ability to be able to focus on it. I think that's where, um, you know, Erno Tool's speech uh, from from a few weeks ago actually was was way more uh, on side with with where Canadians are at. Uh, he talked about, you know, increasing domestic capabilities in terms of manufacturing when it comes to PPE and and other other health type procurements. Uh, he talked about securing Canadian jobs. Uh, he talked about restoring the economy and investing in mental health. These are all huge priorities for Canadians right now. And, you know, I, I just listed four there. You listed a bunch more. Uh, I would I would be surprised if, um, you know, especially if we're voting in the next six months, which which every everyone seems to be pointing that way. Um, if if anyone's really you know if if the environment ends up being in the top five issues for uh, the majority of Canadians, that's for sure. And 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 that's what the Conservatives are banking on, um, and uh, and what the Liberals are doing instead are are making sure that they're occupying uh, that that left side. Um, of the spectrum. Uh, one, one other thing that I noticed, you know, coming out this weekend, it's clear that Canadians on the left side of the political spectrum have two options, uh, while more centrist, pragmatic Canadians um, have the Conservatives. So, so I think, I think that's, that's where the Liberals want to be. And I think that's also where Erno Tool wants to be. And, and what happens here is it just leaves uh, Jagmeet Singh frozen, left out in the cold and with the liberals eating their lunch. And, you know, new polling today from Ipsos say that uh, the federal liberals are in majority territory. Another poll talking about provinces and how they're taking the heat for vaccine rollout when we all know this has been a supply issue. So how do we see these numbers in 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 majority in majority territory when we're having the discussion we are? I think um, that the uh, lion's share of Canadians have uh, have seen a. First of all, let me just say I, I think that the polls have have varied and fluctuated uh, an extreme amount in in the past few months. So I think in the context of of looking at this, we often say you know polls are a snapshot in time, and I think. At this time, yeah. it's, it's even more volatile than than before. We can we can think back a month and a half when you know an ice storm delayed one shipment of of vaccines and Canadians were losing their minds at the government, right? So I I think everyone is uh, the the way that this pandemic has has sort of unfolded. Uh, everyone was in large part. Uh, a big team at the start of this. Uh, lately, it's become a lot more polarized um, and uh, and political. Uh, and so, I think what we're starting to see is a is a manifestation of of that. I would just warn the government that you know as quickly as you can go, uh, you know, up to the top, you can come back down again very quickly if if things don't don't go don't go right. And we've seen how fragile the uh, the supply chain is um, on on vaccines here. So I think they're banking on on having a good few months uh, and then uh, and then, you know, hoping that Canadians remember that, remember that in the fall. But quite frankly, um, you know, the the federal the federal liberals versus the Ontario Conservatives 
it, it, to most voters, it doesn't matter at the end of the day. They're going to blame whoever's in charge uh, if, if vaccines aren't in arms uh, in, in a reasonable timeline. And for many people, that's already passed. Um, yeah, you so know, I mean, we've seen Canada, you know, uh, hold back the second dose and, and, and just shoot out the first doses to try to climb this ladder as quickly as we can. But even when it comes to second doses, we're still like 50th in the world in doing this. Uh, you know, if you look at the debates today that we're having, it's, you know, the debates that we're having, uh, you know, we're, we're arguing over who gets the second dose or sorry, who, uh, the time limit between the second doses, first dose and the second dose. We're talking about priorities and who should get it first and all this sort of and none of that happens if there's an abundance of supply yet nobody seems to be holding that uh, the prime minister's feet to the fire for that instead they're yelling at the provinces which just astounds me yeah that you're absolutely right and and i think you know even even though the shift in language we've seen from the prime minister from you know talking about uh you know the 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 expectation that Canadians will be fully vaccinated from the fall, changing that language to every Canadian that wants a vaccine will have it by, by June. But of course, a vaccine isn't enough, right? It's two or, you know, so, so even, even um, in, in terms of the, the government's vulnerability on this, I think they've, I think they've noticed that. I think that's why we've seen, we've seen a change in language from them because they're they're realizing that talking about being being fully vaccinated in the fall is is too late for for far too many um and and so i think you're gonna i think you can expect to see uh the the communications battle go on between between the provinces uh and the federal government um, however, as I said, at the end of the day, there, you know, it's going to be the government in charge uh, at, at both levels that, that ends up wearing it. Is there a sweet spot here for an election, do you think? Uh, federally? <laughs> yeah. um, uh, I do think I do think um, that uh, I, I think that the prime minister's uh, window for um, uh, an election really will have uh, have uh, to come down to how confident they are in um, their projections for uh, having Canadians fully vaccinated in the fall. If um, if they truly believe uh, that that is going to be the case, then they will wait until the fall. Um, to, to pull the trigger. If there is any doubt in the government's mind um, that, that that is not going to happen, uh, then I would expect to see, uh, you know, a budget followed by uh, a trip um, by, the, by the prime minister seeking uh, an election himself um, and, and asking Canadians to, to take his word for it. Um, so, so I think I think the timing of the election is is more so going to be a reflection of how confident the government actually is in in their plan to have everyone vaccinated by by mid fall. Andrew Brander's been with us, senior consultant with Crestview Strategies and former director of communications for the Ontario government. Andrew, thanks so much for the time. Much appreciated. Be well. Great to chat with you, Scott. Take care. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. All right. Uh, obviously, last week, um, the world mourning the passing of, uh, of Prince Philip and uh, considered uh, certainly the UK's grandfather uh, and uh, 99 years of age, just uh, a few weeks short of a couple of months short of his uh, 100th birthday. And uh, obviously, in a uh, COVID-19 situation, it certainly alters plans for funerals. Um, the prince not wanting a big to-do anyway. Uh, however, the pandemic uh, obviously complicating that. And uh, Prince Harry has returned to the UK. To uh, talk about all of this, let's bring in Crystal Gaman Singh, Europe Bureau Chief for Global News, and is with us now. Crystal, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well. Hi, yes, I am. Thanks for asking. So uh, what do we know as far as details of the upcoming funeral for Prince Philip? What can you tell us? 
Well, we do know, as you said, it will be sort of a pared down affair just because of COVID-19. But no, he didn't want a big fuss. He didn't want um, sort of the, the, the big ceremony that you will often see. But it will still be a royal ceremony. Uh, the actual funeral itself taking place on Saturday at 3 p.m. exactly. This is all happening inside the grounds of Windsor Castle. And that means it is not a public affair. That will not be a public procession, uh, nothing of that nature. But it will be broadcast on television. So there will be access. Um, it will be very small, as I mentioned, inside uh, St. George's Chapel. There will only be 30 mourners. Uh, however, you will see on the grounds when the coffin uh, comes out of um, Windsor Castle and heads over to St. George's Chapel, there will, of course, be um, you know bands that will be there. Different uh, regiments will be represented. So there will be the pageantry that we've come to expect. It'll just be much smaller and people won't have, you know, that opportunity to see the, the, the coffin to, you know, there wasn't that opportunity for, for the coffin to lie in state where you would see people sort of pass by and pay tribute. But we have seen so many people uh, paying tribute in their own way, dropping off flowers on the other side of Windsor Castle, sort of near the Great Park, um, and really just trying to express their grief and, and show support for the royal family. Everyone we've talked to has said that they feel the need to make sure the family knows that they are supported and we've heard members of the royal family acknowledge that and thank people uh, for the, the kind tributes, saying, you know, we heard from not only Prince Charles, but also Prince Andrew and Prince Edward. Uh, and in a statement from Princess Anne, they all talked about how uh, meaningful it's been and how it's helped them. You know, they've said that, you know, it's Yes, he was 99, and they had expected it, and they were preparing, but it it didn't reduce the shock, and, and it, it hasn't um, sort of taken away any of their pain in, in the, the grieving process here. Uh, obviously, lots uh, concerned in regard to the family getting together. Will Harry be there? Obviously, he has arrived in the U.K. Uh, without Meghan. Um, how much do that of that underlying current of the, the Oprah special is going to be bubbling through on this? Uh, what's the mood? The, the mood is really that people are, are um, acknowledging the fact that he is here and basically saying, of course he's going to attend. Of course he's going to attend his grandfather's funeral. Uh, there was really, uh, it appears, no doubt that he would come back for this. He, uh, we're told, has been, you know, obviously in quarantine, has gone through the testing to actually arrive in the UK to to attend. Um, but there really isn't much of a surprise that he is here. Uh, no, Megan is not here, but, uh, you know, some are making a bit of hay with that. But of course, she is very pregnant. Uh, um, so, you know, the flight to the U.K., not the best, um, and it was under doctor's orders. We're told that, that she is not attending. It's, you know, no other reason than that. We have had statements from both Prince Harry and Prince William today, really, again, touching tributes that are are very um you know regal in their tone but also some some sweet lines that just you know talk about the fact that this is this is a grandfather who passed away yes he was you know the queen's consort and, and they were married for 73 years but this is also a grandfather the statement from harry at one point talking about how you know yes he was the rock of the queen and and uh you know uh, uh, had unparalleled devotion but he also mentions the fact that you know he he was the master of the barbecue and a legend of banter and, you know, quoting his, his statement here and cheeky right till the end. Um, he, he wrapped up his statement, actually, with a Latin phrase that's used. Uh, it's, it's sort of a marine slogan by by sea and by land. The, the statement we've had from Prince William, again, very personal, talking about what he meant to the family, but of course to the nation, uh, calling him an extraordinary man and a part of an extraordinary, de you know, generation, saying that, you know, they will uh, care for the Queen for the years ahead, but that they will um, deeply miss their their grandfather. So really touching tributes from from all of the members of the royal family. Uh, what about the relationship between Harry and William, obviously strained in the past uh, for obvious reasons? Will this heal wounds? Will there be some sort of reconciliation over this period? A lot of talk about is this, you know, will this be the event that brings them back together? 
honestly, I don't think that's anything anybody can know. That will be a family affair, and, and I'm sure that there will be experts dissecting the body language that will be captured from cameras far, far away. Um, but whether or not we can actually truly know what's going on inside inside a very close-knit family, I, I, I think that will be to be interpreted by others, but I doubt anyone will actually really know. Uh, and have we heard anything from the Queen at all? Uh, do you expect to? We haven't had anything official from the Queen. Obviously, you know, we did hear from a, a former uh, a British Prime Minister who said, you know, is one of the people who said, like, this is a woman who's lost her husband. Yes, she is the Queen. Yes, she has responsibilities. Yeah. But she's also earned the right to grieve. Um, and, it, and it seems, you know, we've seen all of her children paying her visits and, and spending time at the castle uh, at different, uh, you know, different days since Prince Philip's passing on Friday. Uh, we haven't heard from her directly, and, and I would be surprised if we did before the funeral on Saturday. Um, has, do you think this will, I mean, my goodness, the woman is, I think, 95. Um, 90, 94. She'll, she'll 94, be, you know be turning she'll, 95. She'll be 95 um, coming up next week. It's her birthday. Yeah. So, I mean, I know that uh, that uh, obviously Prince Charles is slowly taking over more and more of the duties and such. But do you think with this passing that there'll be a significant change in in what she does and her her role? From, from what I understand and what we've seen in the past, um, consistency is important with the monarchy, keeping going important. Uh, so I don't think there will be any major shifts that occur. Um, I think obviously they are they are, have a longer mourning period than, than the nation. The nation has eight days of mourning. The family will have two weeks. Um, I, I would be surprised if we saw any major shifts following this. Um, it, it is very much within the, the family, within the, the workings of, um, of, of the crown for it to, to continue on um, as it is supposed to and as it has for, for generations before. Well, uh, obviously, this, as you mentioned at the start of all of this, due to the pandemic, there's restrictions and, and so on and so forth. Um, will there be a large portion of this that the public does not see or will we be watching from afar? We'll be watching from afar, absolutely. Everything is going to be happening inside the grounds of Windsor Castle. Um, you know, he, he, he's, his coffin is currently um, in the private chapel at the castle. It'll be moved to St. George's Chapel. Uh, that will be done by um, a, a Land Rover that he had a hand in helping to design for this very purpose. Uh, we will see a number of bands there. There will be a number of, of regiment officials. So there will be some, some pomp and ceremony to all of this. And people it will be broadcast. People will be able to watch it. It just won't be that affair where you know people will be involved. Um, whether or not we'll see people standing outside and, and trying to take it in, I'm not sure. We are obviously being told, listen, we have to be uh, aware of COVID-19 restrictions. But that's why we are seeing you know the the setup happening right now. It will be broadcast on television, a way to give people access and, and sort of bring them into all this. Because again, as you had mentioned before, this is. This is an individual who's seen as, you know, the, the, the grandfather of, of the nation, but, you know, the grandfather of the Commonwealth as well. Hmm. Crystal Gaman sing with us, Europe Bureau Chief for Global News. Make sure you're watching Global News tonight for more on all of this. Prince Harry returning to the UK for Prince Philip's funeral. Crystal, thank you for the time. Much appreciated. Be well. You're welcome. Thanks so much. Here at my house yesterday, uh, you watched the Masters, whether you wanted to or not. And, uh, you know, good luck trying to wrestle that remote away from my lovely wife. And um, very exciting to watch, especially if you're a Canadian. Let's bring in Scott Radley, host of the Scott Radley Show, sports columnist for your Hamilton Spectator, and, of course, host of the Scott Radley Show every weeknight here. Scott, how are you? I heard an intro, and then it stopped, and I thought, oh, I guess they decided they changed their mind. They're on to Doug Ford. That's right. We've decided to go with the news conference anyway. It's starting early. The setup is quite exciting anyway. Uh, so your thoughts. Let's talk about the Canadian connection here. Corey Connors, uh, I happened to be watching when he got his hole in one. Uh, what a what a huge moment for him. Oh, yeah. No, no. That, that's, um, I mean, there are moments that, uh, that will be remembered from any sports event masters is one of those special ones that just for what it, it exaggerates the importance of everything and so that will be a moment that 
you know, when the day comes that he retires to the seniors tour or whatever else, you will see that shot played again and again and again. That's just, it's just a great, beautiful moment. It's, it's, it would have been way greater and way more beautiful if he could have kept it going into the fourth round and, mm. you know, been right there at the end as, you know, either the winner or right down to the wire. But you know what? It, that, that will be a memorable moment for sure. And do you get anything for that? Well, yeah, you apparently. Now, I didn't realize this. Uh, I didn't either. But apparently you get a set of lovely crystal glasses or whatever for a for an eagle, so two under par. That is an eagle. A hole-in-one on a par three is an eagle. I don't know if it's if they give you something extra for a hole-in-one, if they, you know, I don't know, all the guys, all the members in their green jackets come and wash your car or something as well. I'm not sure, but... Um, or maybe in the end it ends up costing him and he's got to buy everybody in the clubhouse a beer well yeah (laughs) although I'm pretty sure that anybody who's playing on the PGA Tour could probably afford to buy everyone in the clubhouse a beer a lot easier than you or I could so uh, what does this do for him and his profile because obviously that's going to make a lot of highlight reels well sure I mean for, well most the, the most practical thing it does is that he finished in the top 12 so he gets an automatic entry to next year's masters uh, and that's the second time in a row at the masters because he did that in November as well uh, that's which is why he was playing there so it is um, you know these there is I don't think there's another golf event that gets the TV ratings the masters does somebody could correct me maybe the US open does at times but I don't think so. And so to be getting the atten- to, to have that kind of attention on you only helps and only raises his profile around here. It does a couple other things too. One in particular for him, um, assuming, and everything right now is pointing towards the Olympics going ahead this July in Tokyo. Uh, there is a golf event at the Olympics, and it's almost impossible now to imagine the Canadian men's team not including Corey Corey Connors after uh, after that and after what he did in the last Masters. So, you know, he has, I would think, certainly etched in stone now his place on Canada's Olympic team. And then after that, you know, you have some other choices, including one of the other choices for one of the two spots would be Mackenzie Hughes from Dundas. Mm. who finished, uh, who had three great rounds. He finished even par for the first three rounds on a really hard course there. Rougher day on Sunday, finished with a plus four, but still made the cut. And, um, you know, so there's going to be him, Adam Hadwin, there's, there's some choices. But, um, you know, these kind of events, these big, big events, you're doing well in them, really you know, it, it locks you in for things like that. It is going to absolutely if it hasn't already established him and help him with sponsorships and, and yeah. corporate money. I mean, look, there's, there's no, there's nothing bad that happens from doing well at the masters. So let's talk about the winner. Uh, the day before a large lead and slowly it just uh, disappeared, made for an exciting win. Well, quickly. I mean, it was, he had a really bad first hole and like when he teed off his tee shot went way into the woods and you thought, Oh boy, you know, the, the pressure, that he may have been sleeping under that night, knowing that you know no Japanese player has ever won a major, no Japanese player obviously has ever won the Masters, and then all of a sudden his lead is down to one, but then you know quickly back and and look good for him. I mean this is we remember yeah. what the excitement was when Mike Weir won the Masters and how big that was for Canadians and mm-hmm. golf to golf in Japan. Yeah, is even much bigger than it is in Canada, and so gr- great for them that they get to have their hero like we had with Mike Weir, and you know he is now going to be as big a celebrity as there is in Japan. Yeah, and and that's you know what, uh, look, who can be anything? But if if Corey Connors or Mackenzie Hughes couldn't win, who else do you want to cheer for than a guy who can do something that is a first and that will basically ignite an entire country and mm. make them excited and bring them a, a moment of happiness and joy. You know, if an American guy had won, it would be great. You know, fine. Good. I'm sure that, I mean, it would change his life, but it wouldn't do anything yeah. on a broader scale mm-hmm. like him winning will do in Japan. So I, I was thrilled. 
Uh, can't let you go without asking your quick opinion on the Olympics. Obviously, uh, coming up in Tokyo and then Beijing, uh, there's been lots of concern about the pandemic uh, for Tokyo as well as Beijing, but even the situation you know, with China and the relationship with the rest of the world. Um, obviously, athletes have been training for their life for this sort of moment, but should uh, should we be sending our, our Canadian team to, to Beijing? Well, so yeah, Tokyo became a little less complicated once they said, we're going to go ahead, but we're not going to have fans. Yeah. So at least foreign fans. So it's a little less dicey. Beijing is really tough, Scott. And, and I'll tell you why, because I mean, look, I'm a sports guy. I love the Olympics. I love sports. And I, I understand, as you just outlined, that athletes pour their entire life into preparing. They have spent four years at least preparing for this. This is the the thing that they have set their sights on. And I hate, I hate that we would somehow use them as political chess pieces. However, the flip side is how do you possibly as a country, now I know that the cabinet and the prime minister did, but how do you as a country declare that the host country of the Olympics is committing genocide against the weaker people is holding two of our own people as mm. political prisoners has giving them a show trial and who knows what the outcome of that is going to be. We're going to find out soon enough. How do you possibly then say, oh, never mind, but we have to go ahead because why? I, I just It's so complicated, but I find it so difficult to say that we can go ahead and send our people there. And I'll tell you, where, the, where I, I lay some money, I, gotta, I know you got to run, but what I have a real problem with right now, the Canadian government has said, we're passing this decision on to the Canadian Olympic Committee. Yeah, yeah. That is a complete cop-out. This is a decision that is so big and so meaningful. This is not something you pass off to a bunch of bureaucrats. You, as the elected officials, this is why you're elected. So you make the hard decisions, and then you explain why you made it, and you live with the repercussions. This is not something that should be passed off. The government of the day should be making the call on this one, and they should be saying, unfortunately, unless something changes very quickly, we're not going. And I hate to say that, but that I don't see the other way around that. Can you see this as just a train wreck waiting to happen? Because things are only going to intensify as the games become closer, especially with the, the trial of the Huawei CFO. So I, I can't see this getting any better between then and now. Well, who's going to blink? I mean, yeah. do you expect that the Chinese government is suddenly going to say, oh, well, we'll give you the two Michaels back because we want you to come to the Olympics. I, I don't see any likelihood of that at all. And I, Well, the Chinese and, have already said to everybody, including the, the United States, if you don't show up, there's going to be issues. <laughs> so, right. you, know, you better come to my party or I'm going to get you. Well, and now the Americans, we heard last week, are beginning to talk with some of their allies about what they're going to do about the Beijing Olympics. And so, you know, this thing could accelerate, as you say, rather quickly. And, you know, there has even been a suggestion, which I think is ridiculous, because it's really impossible in such short notice. There's been a suggestion, hey, we have all these facilities available in Vancouver that were used just in 2010. Any country that wants to boycott Beijing, and we don't want to penalize the athletes, everybody come to Vancouver and we'll run competitions there. That, that, I've heard that from a number of places. Mm -hmm. That's kind of a ludicrous idea, just because you couldn't do it that fast. You're basically saying, this is why it's so tricky. You're basically saying, we're either going or we're telling the athletes, I'm sorry, you're just going to have to understand. And that is, that is tough, Scott. That is really yeah, tough yeah. and really a difficult conversation that you're going to have to have. But what do you say to the families of the Michaels and to everyone else who, who have family or, or friends or people over with the Uyghurs? I mean, Scott, it's such a mess. It is such a mess. Yeah. That I, it's just it's hard to figure out how they're going to untangle this. Uh, you got to wonder what the IOC's position is on all of this because they must well, see the this IOC's coming. Position is simple: you better come. Yeah. And, yeah. You know, and, and so what happens if if they don't? I mean, we saw with Moscow. Remember the the, the yeah. boycott that led to the um, the Goodwill Games that Ted Turner started once upon a time, and they faded out. But the, I mean, the IOC's in, a, in an interesting spot too because then all of a sudden. If the Olympics become the very thing that they are designed, theoretically, not to be, they're designed, they say, to be apolitical. And if the Olympics all of a sudden become the thing that we use as the pressure point, the fulcrum to exert political pressure, well, the Olympics movement is probably dead because the next time the Games are in the West, 
China and all their allies are not going to come as, as, you know, payback. And then the next time someone else does something, we say, well, we're, if we didn't go to Beijing, we can't go here. It, it is a really, really, as I say, a really complicated, really difficult issue that it sounds simple. It's not simple. It really isn't for all kinds of reasons. Scott Radley with us, host of the Scott Radley Show and sports columnist with your Hamilton Spectator, talking everything from uh, the Masters to the Olympics. As always, Scott, thanks so much for the time. Be well. You too, Scott. Thanks. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcast and Google Podcast or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening.